Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Looking forward to this season's Recovered Voices project, Dr. Tiffany Kuo shares the history of Traces, a staged vocal work by Luciano Berio, censored at the height of the civil rights movement. Listen in as Dr. Kuo explores the intricacies of this controversial and important work. Tickets to LA Opera's Recovered Voices double feature are available now at laopera.org. June 1964. Four months before the scheduled premiere, Luciano Berrio's staged vocal work was censored. The work, titled Traces, was commissioned by the Sergei Kuzovsky Music Foundation and had been scheduled to premiere in the Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge concert series at the Library of Congress. Berrio conceived Traces as a series of happenings, orchestrated in the style of an oratorio. The work is scored for two vocal soloists, one mezzo-soprano and one soprano, two actors, one boy and one man, and a double SATV chorus. Burial set the libretto to the chief of the music division at the Library of Congress, named Harold Spivak, after which the terrible news arrived in a letter dated June 29th. In it, Spivak wrote, I must confess that the English text strikes me as wholly unsuitable for performance at the Library of Congress, particularly because of the vulgarities and obscenities which it includes, as well as certain other passages which would certainly give offense. It is with regret, therefore, that I must tell you that we cannot perform the piece at our festival. Berio responded swiftly, asking for revisions, to which Spivak answered indefatigably, I have given further consideration to the text of Traces. I regret that we cannot conceive of revision, which will make this text suitable for the performance in the Library of Congress. Traces was revoked from the concert series. In essence, the entire piece was censored. Till now, Traces has only been performed once at the University of Iowa on May 9, 1969, on the Burial Foundation website and the Universal Catalog. Traces is designated as withdrawn. In other words, it is no longer available for performance. What was this work? What was unsuitable? And why has it remained dormant? Before we begin to answer these questions, I want to share with you my theory of why the work was called Traces. For this, we'll rewind the clock a year to 1963, November 27th, five days after the pronouncement of President John F. Kennedy's death. On that evening of November 27th, President Lyndon B. Johnson stood before a joint session of Congress, which was also broadcasted on national television. First, to acknowledge the nation's loss. And second, to rally his colleagues and the public to continue the former president's missions and legacies. Let's listen. Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, Members of the House, members of the Senate, my fellow Americans, all I have, I would have given gladly not to be standing here today. 
the greatest leader of our time has been struck down by the foulest deed of our time. Today, John Fitzgerald Kennedy lives on in the immortal words and works that he left behind. He lives on in the mind and memories of mankind. He lives on in the hearts of his countrymen. No words are sad enough to express our sense of loss. No words are strong enough to express our determination to continue the forward thrust of America that he began. Two minutes later, in the same speech, President Johnson channels his larger-than-life demeanor with that political animal cadence and delivers the following. First, no memorial oration or eulogy could more eloquently honor President Kennedy's memory than the earliest possible passage of the Civil Rights Bill for which he fought so long. We have talked long enough in this country about equal rights. We have talked for a hundred years or more. It is time now to write the next chapter and to write it in the books of law. I urge you again, as I did in 1957, and again in 1960 to enact a civil rights law so that we can move forward to eliminate from this nation every trace of discrimination and oppression that is based upon race or color. That phrase, to eliminate from this nation every trace of discrimination, where does it come from? The phrase had been uttered by other politicians and civil rights activists, including President Kennedy, at the first meeting of the President's Committee on Equal Employment Opportunity in 1961. There at the meeting, President Kennedy declared the following. The President's Committee on Equal Employment Opportunity is meeting for the first time today. I'm hopeful and confident that from this time forward, the committee will exercise the great powers given to it by the executive order presently remove from government employment and work performed for the government every trace of discrimination because of race, creed, color, or place of national origin. From 1961 to 1964, one can hear the phrase to eliminate every trace of discrimination as a model and a call to action to end racial inequality in the daily lives of every American. 1964 was a particularly contentious year on Capitol Hill, as the Civil Rights Bill proposed in the June of 1963 by President Kennedy would take more than one year to pass through the House of Representatives and the Senate. Finally, on July 2, 1964, President Johnson signed it into law, becoming the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In it, contains several significant legislative actions. First, 
the act enforced constitutional right to vote. Second, it outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. And third, it prohibited racial segregation in schools, public accommodations, and employment discrimination. During this long year, from fall of 63 to spring of 64, Burial lived in the United States. He witnessed firsthand the struggle of racial equality. Undoubtedly, Burial would have heard the phrase to erase every trace of discrimination. I suggest that Burial answer the call to action by staging the traces of discrimination for the predominantly white American audience of the Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge concert series, for them to confront and to reflect in the political heartbeat of this nation on Capitol Hill. Unrealized today, Burial's traces have also been erased. There is so much to recover in this work since traces has remained dormant since the 1960s. So this episode will offer three insights. First, to provide a brief background on the composer, Luciano Berio, and the librettist he worked with for traces, Susan Oyama. Second, given that no recordings of this work exists, I will offer verbal descriptions of what I call staged traces of discrimination. And last, to consider what it means to recover these traces of discrimination today. Part 3. A Reimagined Traces So what were these traces of discrimination that Berio and Oyama intended to stage? Let's start in the very beginning of the libretto, the preface. The three-paragraph preface designates the context, both inside and outside of the auditorium, by specifying the cast, the period, as well as the setting for which traces must be performed. It reads, written for a soprano, a mezzo-soprano, two choruses of 24 voices each, and two actors. Traces may be performed on any stage with minimal lighting facilities. A concert stage stripped of the customary paraphernalia, however, is preferred. This piece should be ideally be presented by Negro performers, the only exception being the mezzo-soprano, who should be white. Chorus A should be casually dressed. Rather formally attired, Chorus B should wear white masks, which allow easy vision and leave the mouth free. The Negro soprano is to be dressed simply. The mezzo-soprano in a revealing evening gown. The two actors may wear whatever the director prefers. Should the use of the Negro performers not be appropriate or possible, another racial group of comparable status may be substituted. If this cannot be done, white performers may be used. In the case that racial opposition should not be pertinent to the community for which the piece is to be presented, any locally significant social, political, or economic groups may be used, 
provided these groups present a meaningful opposition and can be represented on the stage. At any rate, chorus B should function as an unflattering mirror to the audience. An all-Negro audience, for instance, might see chorus B in black masks. This set of instructions is deliberately confrontational, provoking the presumed all-white audience with gestures of racial tension. These words are also uncannily similar to the preface of Jean Genet's The Negre, a French play written in response to the decolonization of African nations, which became one of the main symbols of the Negritude movement in the late 1950s. The play's U.S. premiere in 1961 as The Blacks at the off-Broadway St. Mark's Playhouse in New York City was the first of 1,408 performances during the 1960s. Familiar with the work, Berio and Oyama emulated Janae's theatrical intentions of staging racial opposition and confrontation in the style of a clown show. Except that the venue for Traces was not to be off-Broadway, but on Capitol Hill, the political heart of the nation. They undoubtedly aimed to enrage the audience during one of the more tense months in Washington, D.C. The preface also included an attribution. It reads, I am indebted to the Shiloh Pentecostal Church, West Oakland, California, for its indirect contribution to this piece. In a 2008 interview I conducted with Ms. Oyama, I asked her about this church, to which she responded that she does not recall the exact name. However, she remembers an instance when a friend drove her and Barrio to an African-American church in the East Bay. There, she recalls sitting in the chapel on a level above the ground floor and watching the congregation on a lower level engaged in excited shouting. This reference leads us into the first scene. But before I begin, it's important to understand the structure of traces. There are eight scenes, and each is a type of happening. The bookend scenes, one and eight, feature the double SATB chorus in concert style. Next, the inner scenes can be grouped into two categories. Scenes two, five, and seven are dialogues between the two actors, man and boy. And scenes three, four, and seven are chaotic happenings with the two soloists and the two choruses. Altogether, you can envision the eight scenes like a set of four concentric circles, and the dramatic action presented is a cross-section through the circles. I will not describe each scene, rather I will offer a sampling of the three types, concert style, dialogue, and the chaotic dramas. The instructions for the opening scene indicates that two choruses, A and B, should be mixed facing the audience as for concert performance. The words they sing in this first scene are, Come, we turn, we wait. Your face in shadow, in ashen light. My words in silence to distant cries. Who shall stand after the fire? These words in short phrases are directed at a presumably all-white audience. Come, says the chorus. Come is the first word spoken to the audience as an invitation to join them, African Americans, in the next 45 minutes of musical drama. 
The text, come, we turn, we wait, is composed of verbs, actions that the chorus takes, to turn, to wait. These actions are also suggestive of polite behavioral etiquettes. They turn as a gesture of compliance, bowing to the audience, to admit them to the show. They wait as to not provoke, but to allow the audience to think. This waiting also alludes to African Americans waiting for justice. Dated April 16, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote the following from Birmingham Jail. For years now I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. What appears to be seemingly innocuous words, come, we turn, we wait, are in fact saturated with social political meanings. The last line of the scene who shall stand after the fire, is less covert. Not only is it a common biblical reference to the Day of Wrath. In 1964, many would also know of James Baldwin's short story, The Fire Next Time, published the previous year. Who shall stand after the fire is the final sentence, delivered not as an indictment, but as a plea for Americans to overcome racial division together. The dialogue scenes between the boy and the man are meant to be short interludes that bridge between the choral concert-style singing and the chaotic dramatic ones. One can also think of the set of dialogue scenes comprising of a play within a play. The two characters appear from behind the audience, physically connecting the spectator to the stage as they walk along the aisles while in dialogue. This breaking of the fourth wall brings awareness to the space in which the performance occurs. Burial and Oyama wanted the audience to notice the absence of Black audience members. The nature of the boy and the man's conversation indicates that the older character, man, is the guardian of the younger one, boy. The man instructs the boy on how to behave. He says phrases like, Keep up there, boy. Don't dawdle. Wait. Don't go too near. There might be graves and he also hushes the boy. The boy points out that he sees statues and a distant red light. Once again, these short phrases are seemingly innocuous, but laden with messages of racial injustice and inequality. The dialogues suggest an imaginary cemetery they are trespassing, which perpetuates the white man's negative stereotype of the black man's fear of ghosts. Simultaneously, if we take into account the previous scene, a concert-style choral performance, and the venue of the performance, an auditorium, the casual banter between man and boy implicate that the perfectly still audience members in the auditorium are the statues and tombstones in the cemetery. One interpretation is that elite Western traditions are of the past and that these traditions have produced racial inequalities of the present. Furthermore, the boy represents a new beginning as he acknowledges present realities and physically moves past the audience members towards a red light on stage, representing the burning city, once again referencing James Baldwin's essay. 
The chaotic dramatic scenes are, well, very chaotic. Burial and Oyama utilizes a plethora of quotations, both musical and textual, and all quotations reference African-American culture. For example, there are three different ostinatal rhythms in scene three, the blues, the Charleston, and the African-Cuban rumba. These quotations occur as vignettes woven together like a Renaissance polyphonic mass. The vignettes vary in style. For example, one vignette resembles an improvised slave song. One is an acapella fragment of a television jingle. Several are fictional encounters between people on the street, typically between men and women, or between a law enforcement official and a civilian. One sounds like an excerpt from a sermon. One sounds like a parrot imitating the rhythms of the rumba. There are also explicitly derogatory remarks about African Americans, such as, Would you let your sister marry one? In each subsequent scene of the chaotic drama, the tension escalates, culminating into a climatic clown show in scene six. The heart of scene six is a hysterical monologue performed by a member of the chorus who carries a portable tape recorder with an applause track. The instructions for this character are to harangue audience in manic frenzy. This character speaks nonsensically in a combination of English and Latin verses from the Bible, such as on the making of the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11, and references to John Winthrop's 1630 sermon on the board of the Arabella, all the while interrupting himself with a laugh track. The scene concludes with the two choruses and the two soloists putting on opera-going paraphernalia and freezing intermittently as if striking a pose for the camera. This particular scene is undoubtedly an imitation of Janae's The Blacks. Much has been written about the discomforts of watching Janae's The Blacks. And with this scene, Berio and Oyama had aligned themselves with the provocateur. But Traces doesn't end with the clown show scene. Rather, in the final scene, the music returns, de capo style, with a double SATB chorus. The direction reads, Chorus is mixed, facing audience as for concert performance. Chorus walks steadily and slowly toward audience, like a black wall. The verses of scene eight are, Come, we burn, we speak, in metered time, in ashen light. Our words in silence, to distant cries. Who shall stand after the fire? We turn, we wait, becomes in the final scene. We burn, we speak. We, that word sociologist Paul Gilroy calls the perilous pronoun, the signifier of the formation of an identity, is the subject matter of traces. The we that Berio and Oyama have evoked are African Americans. African Americans who have tried to turn away from the acts of discrimination, who have waited for their freedom, and whose words and voices have been silenced. When Harold Spivak removed Traces from its scheduled performance, he, in effect, erased the traces of discrimination against African Americans that Burial and Oyama had intended to stage as 
an unflattering mirror of the 1964 Coolidge concertgoers. Ironically, Spitvast's actions fulfilled the political call by Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. However, the action itself is another act of injustice against burial and Oyama. Part 4. Recovering Traces In 1968, four years after Traces, Burial summoned similar musical idioms in O King. This piece, O King, exists both as a standalone five-minute chamber work and as a slow second movement in his orchestral work, Symphonia. O King is dedicated to the then late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who had been assassinated earlier that same year. The textures and timbres of O'King bear striking resemblance to the opening and closing choral scenes of Traces. Neither work feature prominent melodies or metric pulses. Rather, both emanate a calm tone color, but with unexpected frequent attacks. The effect is a haunting nebulous resonance, as if from afar, with piercing attacks. One striking difference, though, is the text. Gone are the words, come, we turn, we wait, or come, we burn, we speak. Instead, simple utterances of vowels and consonants of Martin Luther King's name, using phonetic pronunciations from the International Phonetic Alphabet, are heard. For example, ah, ing, u, uh, and ing. The only word that we can hear clearly is king. I don't hear these vowels in the one word in O King as either covertly or overtly political. The piece sounds like a respectful, though sanitized, musical tribute to the late civil rights leader. Additionally, with intimate knowledge of traces, I perceive O King as a musical memorial of his censored work. A year later in 1969, the Center for New Music at the University of Iowa staged the only performance of Traces, for which there are no known recordings. Then, in 1972, the work was withdrawn from the Universal Edition catalog, permanently silencing the work. Several years ago, when I talked to Miss Oyama and Burial's widow, Miss Talia Pecker-Burio, neither expressed interest in a revival. I understood that the moment has passed. That is, the staging of a confrontational chamber opera on Capitol Hill as American politicians debated the Civil Rights Bill of 1964. Perhaps Traces does not need to be resurrected, but understanding its history today serves as a mirror for us to interrogate our own biases. Reflecting on Traces, we can ask ourselves, what progress has been made in racial equality and social justice, both on and off stage? Which works are presented? Who is cast on stage and who performs in the pit? Who sits next to us in the dark auditorium? How is the work staged? Who manages the organizations, sits on the board of trustees, and makes key decisions? 
I am grateful as an Angelino that our city's opera company, LA Opera, has expanded the operatic repertoire to include recovered voices of the past, including Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, the anonymous lover, and this upcoming season, William Grant Still's Highway 1 U.S., and Alexander Zemlinsky's The Dwarf. L.A. Opera has also included voices, both composers and performers, of different ethnic and racial backgrounds. And most importantly, it has staged works that challenged us with difficult historical and contemporary subject matters. For example, the harrowing transatlantic slave trade scenes in the first act of Rhiannon Giddens and Michael Abel's Omar and the shockingly hyper-realistic scenes of an economically depressed, opioid-induced, rust-belt America in Simon Stone's innovative staging of Donizetti's Lucia de la Memoir. Both projections, in particular Omar, triggered open dialogues on difficult conversations, including race, and welcomed all Angelinos into the Dorothy Chandler Auditorium. Personally, I'm looking forward to Gabriela Frank's El Ultimo Sueño de Frida in Diego, Joel Thompson's Fire and Blue Sky, and Wang Ro's The Book of Mountains and Seas, in addition to Highway 1 and The Dwarf. So let's keep opera alive, invigorating, and modern. I'll leave you with a short excerpt from a burial interview in the documentary Voyage to Scythera, in which he reveals the impetus for his compositions. I, I step very often in unknown uh, territory, like Sinfonia in, in, in the 30 years ago. And it's important to, the feeling of communication must be challenged by other dimension, otherwise it becomes a, uh, you know, a banal uh, experience. I don't like music that confirms what has been already uh, stated proved, but uh, I like to explore new things, obviously, like uh, all musicians always did in their, in their life. Tickets to LA Opera's Recovered Voices double feature are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Bye.